You're listening to Love Stories with me, Dolly Alderton, a series in which I talk to guests about their most defining relationships, the passion, heartbreak, longing, familiarity and fondness that has formed who they are. My guest this week is the author, journalist and broadcaster, Efwa Hirsch. Her work has been varied, voracious, curious and taken many forms, but there are two main themes at its heart, injustice and identity. She's worked as a barrister, as the West African correspondent for The Guardian and as social affairs editor for Sky News. Her recently published and best-selling book, Brit-ish, is an exploration of race identity and belonging. Part memoir, drawing on her experiences as a woman of Ghanaian, English and Jewish heritage, and part research-based, looking at history, anthropology and the personal experiences of many others. Brit-ish brings together a thoughtful, intelligent, accessible, informative investigation on Britain as a nation not only in the midst of an identity crisis, but in denial of what it has been and still is. Exactly. Yeah. I just feel, in fact, the more I worked on the book, the more it struck me how deep this goes. Mm. Um, We are in total denial about our history. And that's the fundamental building block for a, a sense of understanding as to who you are. You know, either as an individual or as a nation, you need to know your history, where you're from, your roots. Think about an adopted child, how hard someone who's adopted will often work to find out the story of their biological family. Mm. I think it's that very fundamental yearning to just know the backstory. And as a nation... We haven't done that. We're almost like the child who just reinvented themselves, cut off their history, never bothered to find out who their biological parents were, mm. made up a version of the past mm. that suited a kind of contemporary agenda and then um, kind of predictably fell into crisis over it. And yeah. it felt like that's what was happening. So I just felt this very personal urge to write about it. But also, you know, I'm interested in social justice. I'm interested in society and and it's because I care about Britain, really. And it's ironic that people say, if you write this kind of thing, you're not patriotic and you don't like it, you should leave and all this stuff. And it's ironically, as I've realised that this is actually my place. And yeah. that if I don't feel I can belong here, then there's something wrong with here rather than something wrong with me. What I get a sense of is someone who's very passionate about their home, you know, which is what this is. And how how, um, a home should be serving everyone. Everyone should feel like it's their home. Exactly. And I think the majority of British people want every British person to feel at home here. But we're so far from understanding what we need to do to make that happen. Mm. I think we were all caught up in this um, this kind of blindness to our history and in this helplessness as to how we can create an identity that we can all belong to. Mm. One of the fears with these conversations is that they will expose lies they will expose gaps of my knowledge that are missing they will expose ignorance they will expose prejudice and that's uncomfortable but these are conversations that have to happen like I don't it's not comfortable for me to read your incredible book or Renier Edo Lodge's book and realize that I have no fucking clue about black history well history it should be called yeah, exactly and- you know I have no clue and that's that's an embarrassing thing to admit, so, but it needs to be admitted and it needs to be and also, And that's why it was important for me not to write the book in a spirit of blame, because like, why would you? Because it wasn't, I'm sure you weren't taught it at school. Mm. And now that there is this whole narrative around black history. It's, it's just as misleading because it creates the impression that it's this kind of specialist subject you can learn about for a few weeks. Well, before, for a month, isn't before it? Before reverting yeah. to white history as usual. Yeah. And yeah. black people suffer from that as much as white people. You know, we all are receiving um, this conditioning that's dishonest. So I 
definitely didn't want people to feel like I was pointing the finger and blaming them. I want us all to understand how we got to this place because it is a really problematic place and that really there's no alternative to doing the uncomfortable work. And I agree with you, writing the book was uncomfortable. I was thinking about the people I grew up with or my parents or my teachers and how they would feel about me writing about so many of the failures in our thinking and it was important to me that they didn't feel like I was trying to persecute them or blame them and I think you know for me this is a project of reconciliation I want us to be united in this work but it is work and I think it's too easy to just say you know let's just put that all behind us and be post-racial you can't do that until you've acknowledged your present and your history Something you write very compellingly about is how we're so keen to teach abolition on the syllabus and how we how how we were the saviors, but not how we started it. Did you recognise that from your own experience? Yeah, yeah, I did, I did, and and also I know I knew when you said that myth that is often touted that there was no uprising. Like, how can I not have questioned that? that's just a huge part of the story that's just not there. Yeah, I think the way that these narratives work is very powerful because a lot of the stuff that I've written, I hadn't fully processed until I wrote this book. Mm. It all suddenly came together and I was like, this is this is a real, a really tight system of erasure. Yeah. Um, and it's quite hard to find out about the history of slave rebellions because it's not that accessible. You know, I spent weeks in the British Library Did you? digging around yeah. and finding these stories. They weren't things that you can just Google and find, you know, and they're kind of, um, they are located in like the scholarship of black scholars who and African scholars and slavery era experts, but they're not part of the mainstream. And that's the problem. I am not a conspiracy theorist. I, this wasn't one person sitting there just kind of like with an eraser, you know, or like yeah. rewriting history. Yeah. It's just a cumulative effect of... Um, First of all, not taking that side of the story seriously. And then I think over the Victorian era, when we recast ourselves as this imperial nation, we needed to have the moral upper ground. You know, we needed to be able to justify invading countries, Christianizing them, bringing them into common law and the English language and our system, extracting their resources for our gain. And to do that, you have to create a pretty impressive ideology. And that ideology needs to be, we are the leaders of the civilised world. We are a superior nation. And it's not compatible with that to say, we've done some really terrible things. Yeah, We have got a rotten core in our past. And so it's just been erased. What I find so fascinating about this is how history informs identity. If you talk about Winston Churchill... A lot of people will react as if you're talking about their own family or yeah. their, themselves. They yeah. feel that's part of who they are. Yeah. And I relate to that. I respect that because my interest is identity. And I understand how these people can become iconic symbols of your own identity. And that's why it's very sensitive to um, display another side to their past. So I'm, I'm very aware of the reason that this can be seen as so difficult. Mm. But I also see us as a nation that is intellectually curious, interested in fact, loves history. You know, we watch endless period dramas and we go to National Trust properties and we love the Crown and Downton Abbey. And, you know, we are that nation that loves our history. And I yeah. think I think that we are big enough to be able to cope with the fact that history is a bit more complicated than we've been led to believe. Mm. I think people who tell me that um, it's just not right to raise these things I, I don't. I think they underestimate us as a nation. Yeah. I think we can cope. It's not going to make us hate ourselves. Mm. You can 
both admire and be grateful for Winston Churchill while also recognising that he contributed to three million people unnecessarily dying in a famine. Yeah. You know, both things are possible. Well, the problem is, is that as well as our hunger for history, British people, I think, have a very dangerous propensity for nostalgia. And actually, I remember reading a piece that was my favourite piece um, before the referendum by A.A. A. Gill, which was about... Did you read it? Which was Maybe. about... The, I tended to read everything he wrote because he yeah. was such a genius. It was amazing. And he talks about the danger of misty-eyed nostalgia and longing for a Britain that didn't exist. I definitely read that. I remember reading it when I was writing my book because I wrote quite a bit about nostalgia in my book. And did you know that nostalgia, when it was first invented as a concept in the like early 18th century, it was an illness. It really? was seen as an actual illness that doctors would treat. The word was first used for Swiss mercenaries who were fighting in um, Europe in the wars of like the 1700s and they, they came from the Alps and the mountains and they had that kind of classic Alpine Swiss mm. um, life and they were, you know, fighting in, in completely different environments and really harsh conditions and they, they started to get really sick and depressed and they were diagnosed with this thing called nostalgia which was basically a homesickness and a longing for a world that they had now left behind and it was treated with drugs and medicine Fucking and, you know, hell. and operations. They would amputate stuff and I think that's so interesting because it, what it conveys is the potency of nostalgia. It is a powerful thing. It's like an illness yeah. and it, it, it can kind of distort your sense of reality, I think. You recently went viral. I never know what, what qualifies <laughs> as viral, but I saw it everywhere. Everyone was um, sharing it on Sky News in an incredibly frustrating debate that I think is very telling of a lot of white ignorance around the black experience today. Two white women questioned whether you actually experienced racism every day. And you said, yes, you said othering microaggressions and subtle prejudice, which they seem to fail to accept on account of their privilege and therefore kind of their short sightedness or even sort of lack of imagination or selective sight. Is this a common occurrence for you, this attitude? Yes. And I actually have a rule that I do not talk about race on the pledge. And the reason is, and that debate show that you were just talking yeah. about, and the reason for that is I've done it once before. And what I found was actually quite fascinating psychologically because the pledge, um, it's quite balanced, not as balanced as I like it to be, but there are people on the kind of right of the political spectrum and there are people more on the left. And in almost, in every other debate, I have allies. And in the previous occasions when I've been drawn into conversations about race, I found, and I'm often the only black person on the show mm. or the only person of colour at all, I found that the other panellists subconsciously group together yeah. and attack me on on the, on what I'm saying about race. And I don't think they know they're doing it. It's a very subconscious defensiveness. And I think that's actually reflected on a much bigger scale in the attitudes of people in the country in general. And I think there are lots of complicated reasons for that. I think people think you're trying to blame them if you talk about your experience of race um, and they feel threatened by it. And they would rather it just went away. And then they also have an experience where they feel they can make it go away. But also, I think so much of it is just removing your ego from the conversation. Yeah, yeah. And realising it's something so much bigger than talking about individuals. This is the thing I think it is partly that we've all been encouraged to believe that we can just move on from it. We don't need to understand it. We don't need to acknowledge it. Um, it's inconvenient. And I think there is also, you know, to give people the benefit of the doubt, 
on the show, for example, I think sometimes when people say they don't see race, yeah. what they're trying to communicate is that they've distanced themselves from racism, which is obviously great. You know, they're saying, I am not a racist person. I don't want to be associated with prejudice. When I look at you, I'm not looking at you um, as an inferior person, which people used to do. So I get that. But what they don't realise is that it's not about them, like you're saying, mm-hmm. you know, and it's when you locate it in what you choose to see and don't see as a person with a degree of white privilege, you are erasing the experience of a person of colour that you've not experienced yourself. And so it's that kind of humility, just understanding, well, maybe this is an experience I've not been aware of and that I don't understand. And so I find that those kind of confrontational situations are not good spaces Mm. to have that discussion. And for me personally, that conversation was actually quite traumatic. Of course. Because it replicated my experience growing up where I felt like I wasn't allowed to have an identity. You know, people around me kind of conspired to make it go away so that they felt more comfortable. Totally subconsciously and in a well-meaning way. And that had a very profound effect on my kind of emotional and psychological well-being. And I relive that when I have to be in a space with a group of white people shouting at me, telling me that... I'm imagining it and I have a chip on my shoulder and I should move on. Something that you write about in your book that I found heartbreaking to read is the fact that you have your whole life tried to play down your blackness Mm -hmm. to signal to white people that you are not dangerous or disruptive. These are things I've only learned about in writing my book. So this idea of white approval that, you know, and I think this is something that especially people like me who grew up um, as a very visible minority, because I was one of the only black girls in my school and I didn't have a black community around me. So, you know, and as a young person, as a teenager, you want to fit in and you want people to like you. So the dynamic at work there is that you kind of are encouraged to minimise your blackness to make people feel comfortable and you kind of become complicit in it because you want to be accepted. And it's taken me a long time to unpick that and understand that that's what's been happening. And actually my relationship with my partner, who I write about in the book, has been quite pivotal in understanding that because he's the opposite. He's got no desire for white approval. He's never had it and felt he never had any hope of getting it. And actually that was quite liberating because he's always just been able to be true to himself and that made me reflect on my behavior and 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 it's quite a subtle psychology but um i've really found so many people relating to that Mm. and also as you said i think it's about educating yourself around language because something i was talking to my best friend about this book last night and i was talking to her about the notion of color blindness and people who say i don't see race and she said to my shame i think i said that when i was a teenager And I said, I think I probably did too. And we talked about where that would have come from. Mm. And she she said she just cringes out now thinking that she said that. And I said, I remember my parents saying it. Mm. And she remembers her parents saying Mm. it. And as you said, I think that that was our parents' generation Mm. trying to distance themselves from their parents' generation who lived in a segregated world. But even my parents would say that. You know, and my mum's black. I think it's not just a white thing. I think it's when you are the majority in a country and you are visibly the majority, you don't have those experiences of otherness. You have the luxury of not having to think about race. 
basically. Yeah. I meet um, parents of mixed race children. You know, like um, uh, there's a, f- a friend of mine who is a white man. He's married to a black woman. They've got um, two little children. And when I first met him, he was going on about how I don't see race. I don't see my children's back. They're just children, you know. And I was like, I get what you're saying, that your children, you know, you love them unconditionally and it's not a racialized love, which is, you know, why would it be? But you need to think about equipping them for their identity because they are going to be growing up in a world where they are racialized, where the world sees them through a prism of race. And whether individual people say they choose not to see it or not, that's the reality. And how are you going to equip them to embrace that in a healthy way, to own their identity, to make Mm -hmm. it something positive? Because if you don't, which is what happened to me, you discover it in a negative way. You discover Mm. race through people taunting you Mm. or um, making fun of you or um, accusing you of things. And that is not a healthy way to discover a relationship with your racial identity. For a a girl or a young woman especially, I mean, I think we all have our issues, don't we, growing up around our bodies and our beauty and our sexuality and our gender. It's always like a painful experience. That's what adolescence is. But for me, there definitely was this added layer of this otherness and, you know, the fact that all of the magazines I read you know, which were about beauty and kind of selling you looks that were beautiful and telling you what products to use. You know, they were completely irrelevant to me. None of the products worked on my hair. None Mm. of the products worked on my skin. And nobody looked like me. Mm. And you do start to define beauty um, in respect of the ways it's portrayed in magazines or in ads or in movies. There was nothing I could do to make myself fit into that that definition of beauty. And I think it it really affected my self-esteem for a long time. And that's tough because, as you said, like, as a teenage girl anyway, you already, the default is, everyone thinks I'm hideous. Exactly, exactly. It's a hard time anyway. And yeah. I don't want to kind of, like, claim some monopoly of over-suffering and adolescence, you know. No, not at all. But it, it does add just, like, another layer for which you have, like, evidence of. Exactly. You know. And I, I just, there are so many things I remember, like every time John, when John Frieda came on the market with these Frizzies products, yeah. which was a big moment, I think I was about 13 or 14. And I literally, I mean, I think I was the first person in boots that day queuing up to buy it. And I thought this is going to solve all my problems. I was going to have straight hair like yeah. all my white friends. Yeah. And of course, it's like when he said Frizzy, it wasn't Frizzy like my Frizzy. It was like, if you've got, if you're a white person with a bit of frizz. Mm. And I just was, I, it was just a, obviously overblown as a teenager but the heartache I felt when it just didn't work and it was just kind of devastating and realizing that I was never going to look like everyone else Mm. and just wishing that I did and not having any frame of reference to see anything good about my hair you know which like now I love my hair but at the time it was just totally other you know I didn't know how to look after it there was no one else around me who had hair like it and actually there's quite a big mixed race population now but when I was growing up my hair was alien both to black and white people yeah because black hairdressers didn't really know what to do with it either so there was like an extra dimension that there was no place in which my hair wasn't alien but especially in the place that I grew up so I think the the ideology of hair is actually very important well speaking of the frizzies years (laughs) Um, I would like you to tell me your first love story. Oh, God. Which is a story of first love. I had not thought about this in years, decades probably. Okay, so when I was growing up, we used to go on our summer holidays to France and we had like a nice middle class 
life, but my parents had to work really hard for it. We weren't really affluent. Yeah. They kind of managed to live in a nice area, managed to send us to private school by working a lot and saving everything and being really frugal. Mm. And so we drove on all our holidays. We never flew. And we would find these kind of like self-catering holidays in France that you could drive to and spend like two weeks there in the summer. So I remember going to this resort called Pierre Vacances. My mum was in a bad mood the whole time because it was so much work for her doing all this cooking and washing up. (laughs) And so my sister and I would kind of like roam around this um, resort and there were these ping pong tables and there were this group of French boys there and there was one called Xavier who I was immediately completely in love with. And how old would you have been at this point? I think I was 12. Yeah. yeah, 12 and a half. So this was definitely my first experience of yeah. like, I want to be around this boy. And um, I'm actually quite good at table tennis. <laughs> <laughs> Little known fact about me. <laughs> so this was my way in because he was quite good at table tennis. So I spent my days at the table tennis table trying to beat Xavier. And I think he quite liked playing me, which gave me hope. Oh, but no. he was completely not interested in me. Did he speak in English? In any other way. I think he did speak, like, not very good English. Mm. But his English was probably better than my French. But we didn't talk very much, play table tennis. And he wasn't in hindsight. Not in even hindsight. At the time, I had this struggle because I just so wanted him to like me. And every time he wanted to play me, I thought that it was like, you know, a little opening. And then, no, he would go off with his friends. And then did you keep in touch after the holiday? I think we might have exchanged a couple of letters as you did in those days. Mm. But basically that holiday, and the, probably the reason I remember this, that holiday I bought a diary, like a, a Chevignon diary that I think French school kids would use as their like agenda right. like, to write their yeah. homework. But I quite liked it. It was really chunky and like had a brown paper cover. It was just quite cool. And I had a page per day and I started writing a diary. I think I started writing my diary about the unrequited about love that him. I felt for Xavier. Yeah. So I called my diary Zav. And to this day, I write Dear Zav when I write my diary. I just am so fascinated by this. It's so weird. Now I have to actually explain it. And I, I just stopped thinking about it and so long ago. And you've always kept a diary, haven't I you? I have always kept a diary. And you still keep one now? I still keep a diary. And has like your partner ever said, who is Zav? <laughs> He's not remotely interested in my diaries. He thinks it's the greatest act of self-indulgence. You know, who's got time to actually sit and write about themselves every day is what he would say. Um, I love that you keep a diary. Yeah, I actually credit my diary with making me a writer. Yeah. Because I learned and I honed that skill of translating things that I experienced and saw and felt into words. And um, I found it really therapeutic you know, as, as I went through all these kind of adolescent struggles and identity struggles. Yeah. It must be extraordinary to have that archive of, to plunder sort of emotional moments of your life. Do you know, we were talking earlier about what it was like writing our books. Yeah. And I was asking you how you felt about writing yours. The hardest part by far for me was having to go through my diaries because yeah, I, I never read them. I never oh, read them really? back. I never do. I find reading them so painful. Yeah. And actually, once I started doing it, it wasn't as bad as I thought. It was just this block where I was like, I don't want to relive this stuff. And then when I started reading them, it was actually quite interesting because there's loads that I'd totally forgotten. 
But one, I was a bit overwhelmed by just the sheer volume of stuff that I'd written. It's a lot to go back yeah, over. Yeah. And I was almost annoyed at myself for being so prolific. I was like, well, how am I ever going to have time to go through all this? And two, I think it was it was difficult to just have to face my younger self because yeah. I've changed a lot in some ways. And in some ways I haven't. And both of those things were quite hard to, you know, come to terms with. And do you ever think now I um, interviewed Tina Brown, who had this mm. best-selling memoir, mm. uh, which was her diaries. Mm. And she said as she was writing them, she referred to them as her retirement fund. <laughs> wow. That's the, why didn't I have that foresight? Well, you've got all those <laughs> I books. I do have them. I do have them. Somebody was saying there's this radio, I think on Radio 4, there's a, a thing they do where they get a writer to and you have to just literally hand over your diary. I've listened to it. It's very good. I, I just couldn't do it. I'm not ready. Yeah. I just, I'm not ready. I just, I haven't quite reached that level of self-acceptance that I could let anyone else read them. Yeah. Maybe one day Maybe I will one have day. the collected diaries. <laughs> I pity you if you do. It would be called Dear Zav. Yeah, of course. <laughs> What kind of kid were you? Um, I was very happy. My parents still make fun of the fact that I was that child that when you open the curtains in the morning and say, get up, I've got like a big smile on my face. Oh. I was very happy. I think I've got quite a happy, upbeat, optimistic nature. Um, so I was a happy child. I was I was a reader, actually. Mm. I was a bit of a misfit, to be honest. I was a bit of a geek. I read a lot. I remember like when I had my first boyfriend, when I think I was still 12 as well. So I think Zav... You had your first boyfriend at 12? I think Zav like propelled things quite quickly <laughs> after that. And I was so like, I'm ready. I'm so ready for this. You know, and I remember like reading Just 17 and like, are you ready for a relationship? And I'm like, yes, 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 I'm ready. So I definitely kind of like overnight decided. My parents talk about this. Actually, do you know what happened? I got my hair braided. Oh, you talk about this in your book. I do. I went from having this hair that frizzies could not help to wearing braids. And mm. it did two things. It made me look a lot older, yeah. like overnight. And it also made me look more black, I think. Yeah. It was like it signaled to black people that I was a black person. Whereas mm. before I was just this kind of like weird looking girl with loads of frizzy hair in a private school uniform in a very white area. So mm. I think... That kind of changed the dynamic very quickly. And suddenly I started getting attention from black boys and, you know, having felt really kind of like unattractive and ugly and alien and other, I was like very vulnerable to all this attention. Yes. So, but my first boyfriend was really sweet. He was a oh, really lovely nice. guy. Yeah. He was called Danny. I think he was, had Jamaican heritage, but I think his parents like had died or didn't live here. So he lived with his grandmother. And I remember this really clearly. His grandmother like had no sense of smell. So we would go to his flat where he lived with his grandmother and we could smoke because she could not smell. Hang on. So you were a 12 year old was, uh, with a boyfriend smoking. Yeah. So the transformation happened quite quickly. Yeah. At quite a young age. God, I would have loved to have been friends with you. Yeah, I was cool. I was cool at that age. <laughs> I was definitely cool. I was like fearless and quite wild. Yeah. And I think the defining memory my parents have of my teenagers is I was completely out of control for a lot of them. I started clubbing when I was like 14. And, you know, this was all about finding an expression of my identity because mm. I just didn't feel I belonged in Wimbledon. And when I kind of my world expanded and I discovered there were parts of London where other people looked like me and that was actually attractive and that there were people who came from similar countries to my family and had names like mine and that they were cool and they had music and they had a subculture. I was like sold 
at hello mm. and then mm. I went all out into that world and you know I discovered raving I got into jungle and um, drum and bass and, and then R&B and hip hop and then that was my world and it provided me with an identity which yeah. I'd been so longing for so I think well at the time my parents read it as me just being a kind of like horrific teenager it went much deeper than it that. did go yeah. deeper it was about finding an identity and and also finding something I could pour like my energy and passion into And the school that you went to, was it an all-girls school? It was, yeah. And something I found fascinating is that you were there from the age of seven to 18. And this is weirder. My daughter's at the same school. Really? Yes. Which is really strange because I think if you'd have asked the teachers, like, which of their pupils did they think would return with her own child, I would have been probably bottom of the list. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's... um, I'm fascinated. It goes back to your whole thing of identity. I'm fascinated with how we try to come full circle with Mm. things. So I'm very aware of the fact that of anywhere that I could live in London I've moved into a flat two streets away from my primary school and when I'm feeling low I often find myself around three o'clock hanging around there because something I find very moving soothing I don't know about seeing girls at the age that I was there because the uniform's exactly the same but I wonder what that desire is Mm, I think it is something about a sense of completion and wanting to kind of I mean my life has been all kinds of circles being completed that I didn't even know existed you know it's the same with my relationship that I've kind of taken my heritage back to literally the village that it came from yeah but with my with my daughter I can give you loads of practical reasons why I've ended up living where I grew up it's we were living abroad I was West Africa correspondent came back on my own because my partner who'd moved to Ghana with us was like in the middle of something there so for the first six months I came back on my own I had a new job at Sky which was crazy 5am starts 10pm finishes and I needed to be near my parents it was like the only way that I was going to be able to do that. But you write about Wimbledon as an environmental place mm. growing up with great affection. Yeah, because it is a beautiful place. Yeah. Really beautiful. You know, there's so much open space. There's the common. And I grew up near Wimbledon Park and it's very leafy. It's very safe. You know, the street where I grew up was all families, two parents with, you know, two children, similar ages. So on one level, it was like a lovely community. But when I became a mother, I suddenly realised there were things that I'd experienced in my childhood that I wanted for my daughter. And I didn't literally feel like she needed to play in the same playground and walk the same path to school. But that's kind of what's ended up happening, which is um, and there is something lovely about that. It, it, It feels quite whole. And also maybe there is a sense of like restoration because she is a little black girl and she, the, the school that I went to that she's at is not particularly more diverse now than it was when I was there. But she has access to the black community. Mm. And, she, you know, she's got her dad's family, which is a very big Ghanaian family in North London, which is like a very communal and community oriented place where she spends the weekends and she's got a million cousins her age, you know, and they all have similar hair and similar names and they're all as cheeky and, and as, as she is. And, mm. you know, she has that place and she can slot in there without thought. She mm. feels way more at home there than I do with his family. I still feel like the outsider there. The Wimbledon she's growing up in is very similar to the one I grew up in, but it's balanced out by this other world yeah. that she's in. And yeah, so I feel exactly. she, and that's kind of what I needed. I just needed a community that I felt I could relate to and how did you find the experience of going to an all-girls school? How did that affect the way you relate to women or men? Did it at all? Uh, it definitely, definitely did. I don't think I had a particularly healthy framework for relating to boys. I didn't grow up with any brothers. I don't, we didn't really have male family friends 
it, not particularly. I don't remember spending time with boys in yeah. like a, a, a healthy environment. Yeah. So that meant that once boys came into the scene in a more kind of like romantic and sexual way, I don't think I had um, like the healthiest tools for dealing with that. And that was like a, a, a work in progress over a long time. Yeah. And actually, I remember getting to university and there being girls who'd been at boarding school until they were 18 and seeing that they were kind of where I had been mm. when I was about 15. So I realised, I think that's a thing that you just need to normalise like normal social interactions with boys. Mm. And I probably didn't get that from my school, which I think is something I'm keen to make sure my daughter gets. If I'd like you to tell me your second love story, which is a story of unrequited love. So I had quite a string of heartaches in my teens and my 20s. Mm. I think I was quite a serial monogamist. So I was, I was somebody who always kind of got into these quite intense relationships. Yeah. And in particular at university, there was this one guy that I really fell for. It was just like a very hurtful relationship. And I think he was having his own identity crisis, basically. So he was a black American man, but his parents had been Jamaican immigrants to America. Mm. And he'd grown up in the Bronx in like a really poor situation. He had about 10 siblings, single mother. And he was at Oxford. Like he'd got into one of the best schools in America and then he got an undergraduate degree from a really good university in America and he was doing his master's at Oxford. So he was this incredible person who had like overcome so much. And I think he was struggling with his own issues about his new class identity. Mm. And so there were a number of things going on. He saw himself as somebody who'd come from the hood, basically, you know, from the Bronx, from poverty. Those were his experiences of life. And he'd gone to this posh school where he'd very much felt like the outsider and all his friends would go to Aspen skiing in the holidays and he'd go and pack bags in the liquor store in, in the Bronx. Yeah, that's a head fuck. It's a real head fuck. And then... Um, I think at university in New York, it was still mixed enough that there were people who kind of had, had his kind of duality. But coming to Oxford as a master's student, he was one of these kind of graduate scholars. He was in this incredibly like elite institution and he was hanging out with people like Chelsea Clinton, who was mm. like one of his friends. Mm. And I think he was struggling to embrace the fact that he was now a professional. He was basically a member of the elite now. You know, he'd got there, but he he didn't quite feel that that was who he was and I think the reason I say all that about him is that I think I represented that conflict for him because we kind of were very attracted to each other and um, on one level had a great friendship and a good relationship on another level I think he basically resented my middle classness right he resented that and he he was struggling within himself um, as to whether he could embrace that identity. And I represented this identity that he was quite suspicious of and was kind of resisting because he felt like he was not being true to his roots. And I think I can understand it so much better now. I think that, you know, if you come from somewhere like he came from, it informs your whole life. You know, you always have that identity, no matter how affluent you become or how successful you become. You know, you still feel a sense of your roots. And I think that, who your partner is, I guess, can, is quite a statement to the world about who, mm. you, who you see yourself as. And I think he he didn't want to feel like he was just selling out and just kind of like getting a nice middle class girlfriend and living a nice, happy middle class life. He wanted to stay connected to where he was from. And I didn't really understand it, but I think that was why he kind of was so... 
he basically like messed me around quite a lot and and left Mm. me really hurt at the end of it. But it's hard as well because the pain of unrequited love is examining yourself and thinking, well, what have I done? What is wrong with me? What am I lacking? And with something like that, it's like you can't change that about yourself. You can't change that about yourself. And I already had my own issues because I think with my own identity struggles, Blackness in Britain is defined as a working class identity. Yeah. And, you know, from both sides, I get white people. um, And in fact, this has been one of the reactions to my book in the press. People saying, well, how dare you write about race? You're clearly a middle class person. Like, who are you to have a view on this? I mean, if you read the review of my book in The Times or The Evening Standard, that was a very strong, Mm. by the way, from like very privileged white men saying, Mm. this woman went to Oxford. She's got no leg to stand on to critique racial injustice in this country and I think that that their ignorance is displaying this this kind of insidious idea that blackness is a working class thing yeah and then black people say to me like you're not a proper black person you know you're posh that's not black and this is the very reason why you needed to write that book it is why I needed to write that book and as I said it was partly to help me understand these things and I think that I at the time that I met this particular boyfriend I was going through that myself that Mm. I I felt a strong sense of black identity, but I didn't have a strong precedent for somebody who was where I was from and had my experience and was black. It kind of felt like an either or and I was constantly struggling between the two. So I was very insecure about that part of my identity. So to have a boyfriend who kind of rejected me because of that was really painful. And also I just couldn't fully understand it at the time. I understand it better now. Of course not, because also you would have been, how old would you have been then? I was like 19 or 20 or something. But at that point, I mean, not only do your, your brain isn't, developed enough to like have kind of compassion in the way that you do as an adult but also the thing that charges you and you obsess over is just rejection yeah exactly and it was a huge rejection and actually we um after I graduated I went straight to Senegal in West Africa where I got my first job and it was kind of running away really it was running away from him it was running away from Britain it was running away from my identity crisis I wanted to go and reinvent myself I was like I'm gonna go and be African and that's gonna solve all my problems and there were a number of reasons why that was an incredibly immature plan because I was moving to Senegal, which country I'd never been to before, where they speak French, which is a language I couldn't speak, mm. uh, where they were Muslim, which is a faith that I don't practice, mm. where you know they were, and, and where they had um, you know ethnic identities that I had no experience of. Yeah. So there was like no way I was going to move to Senegal and immediately fit in. I don't think I thought that, but I thought I could kind of find a new Pan-African identity for myself. And then it was yeah, and it was I think this idea that I had that you can solve your problems by going somewhere. There is a place where you can just belong and everything will be fine. And I think I did think identity was a place. There was It was just about finding the right place and then I would fit in. Yeah, I write about this in my book actually a number of times when I was in my 20s and feeling kind of lost or not knowing who I was. I would escape and go somewhere new and just find myself even more lost there because it's always the internal world that defines, okay. you know, who you are. Exactly. It's not a place. It's yeah. a state of mind yeah. and you can't run away from it. You know, you'll carry, and as I learned the hard way, kind of moving all over the world, carrying the same issues and just finding them manifest in new ways, in new places. So it's like you always end up having to come back to yourself and deal with the problems within. And this guy, did you, did you ever talk to him again or did you kind of say Yeah, we contact? did the worst thing you can do, which stayed in touch for ages mm. and like in that limbo place where he was clear dating other women by then and I was and I was so he'd gone back to New York where he had loads of friends loads of family loads of peers and he had a really great job it was really interesting I was in Senegal basically all on my own in this like foreign country to me where I didn't know anyone didn't speak the language didn't have like anyone I could really relate to 
it was easy for me to kind of stay in touch with him and drag out this heartache. Um, I call that breaking up in slow motion. It was breaking up in slow motion. It took me a good two years to get over him because I didn't let go and I didn't, you know, and I say it was difficult for me to fit in in Senegal. I think he was part of that because I wasn't fully invested in my new life. I was still clinging on. I think the experience of Oxford generally and the experience of that relationship had knocked me in a number of ways and it it took me a while to kind of piece myself back together. The living in Senegal and travelling around West Africa, which I did for that job, was really interesting and important part of my kind of professional development. But personally, it was a really difficult time for me. I think it was one of the hardest periods of my life, actually, because I I didn't have the support structure of my family or my friends or the environment that I'm familiar with. And I was... I was working very long hours. I was traveling to really difficult places on my own, coming home to this empty flat. And it was just, it was hard. And I think a lot of people go through this where you leave university and you're so focused on your finals and your exams and whatever, and then getting a job. And then suddenly you're somewhere with this job and this adult life. And you're like, is that it? Like my, my childhood's done. My education is done. That bubble you create for yourself at university where you've got these friends around you, it's kind of suddenly gone and you're yeah. dispersed and dissipated. And I was not ready for it. And I it just kind of, I hadn't thought that through that that world was going to end. And I suddenly felt very like bewildered, I think. And it's also hard, I think. I remember having a moment in my mid-twenties where I was like, God, I'm just like tired all the time and work is boring and I don't ever feel like I have enough money. And all my money I do have, I feel like I spend on stupid stuff. And I'm worried all the time about my family. And I'm worried about people liking me. This It feels like I'm having a bad week all the time. And then I was like, oh no, this is just adulthood. I Do you know, there is no amount of money that could pay me to go back to my 20s. Mm, yeah. It was actually my hardest period. And I think... Really? More than teenage? More than teenage because I think of the expectations I had for my 20s. I think yeah. we all know teenagers are hard and you know you're going through stuff and everything's changing so quickly. And I definitely fantasised about this life where I would be free. You know, my parents were quite strict and they, yeah. we, we clashed because I was quite wild. And I found Wimbledon very like stifling at that age. And I was so fixated on this life and I was going to have my own place and my own money and my own life and I could do what I want. And, you know, and there were things like professionally I really was excited about as well. So it was this whole, I was so excited about that life. And I watched Sex and the City and, oh. you know, it was like, I yeah, am going to be that person. <laughs> yeah. And then, like you said, exactly. Exactly like you said, your 20s are hard. You're still carrying a lot of the insecurities from growing up. You don't know your place in the world. You don't have a clear sense of purpose. You get very distracted by endless social engagements that you don't really want to do, that you spend Mm -hmm. all your money on and then get stressed out about. And you're working a lot, but you're not quite sure what for. And, you know, in my case, you haven't found like the person that you feel you can really kind of have as your companion for life. Mm And but yet you have the expectation that you should be doing all these things and it's because I thought my 20s were meant to be the best time in my life that they were so miserable because I think if I'd have just accepted you know what like just take it as it comes I could have gone with the flow but I was constantly kind of like oh my god I'm ruining my 20s I'm not doing this this right I'm not doing this right I'm getting this wrong this is my one chance and I'm like totally screwing it up Tell me a little bit about your parents, their backgrounds and where they met. I love that story about how your mum was the talk of seven eggs. 
<laughs> I know. So my dad grew up in Seven Oaks and he is really smart. So he like, my grandfather did not believe in private school. Right. He was a communist, essentially, my grandfather. Right. He'd fled Hitler. He was a Jewish refugee. So he went to the other end of the political extremes, communist. But in those days, if you did really well in your 11 plus, if you came top in the county, you got a scholarship to private school. So my dad got a scholarship to Seven Oaks School. And then as a result, and then he did really well. He went to Cambridge a year early. So he went to Cambridge wow. when he was like 16 or 17. Wow. And then he was at a ball in Cambridge one day and there was this black woman there and she had this big fro, big afro, Mary Quant, like lashes and a mini skirt. And she was, by all accounts, extremely beautiful. And I've never actually, I would, I should ask my dad more about this. Why he, who'd grown up in Seven Oaks, which was very like provincial and not multicultural at all, why he was so kind of open to the beauty of this black woman. Because I think for a lot of people, it would have just been so different at that yeah. time. It must have been 1960. I should know this. It must have been 1968. Yeah. Um, and my mum, she was still at school doing her A-levels. She, I think, was in her final year of A-levels. God, so young. So young. And she had gone to Cambridge to this ball with her best friend who was dating someone at that college. I don't know how they'd met, but she was there. And basically... My mum says, and my dad's never disagreed, that when he saw her, he literally was like, she's the one. Aww. And she, by the time she got back to London, there was already a letter on the doormat from him. Oh and she went up a couple of weekends later and he took her punting and they went on a date. And then they just started going out from then. So they've been together since they were, I think by then, my, they were like 18 and 19. God. So that's what, 50 years you said? Yeah, because they're yeah. now 67 and 68, 66 and 67, so almost 50 years. I ask this as someone as the daughter of a very successful marriage, mm. and I think it, it brings both pros and cons. Definitely. Do you find it uh, inspiring or, or daunting or both? Yeah, I think, you know, talking about the relationship I had at university... I think I basically thought that you go to university, meet the love of your life, get married and live happily ever after. I agree. It gives you very high expectations. It does. I, I honestly don't think I'd actually challenge that. That's yeah. just what happens to you. And a lot of my parents' friends had met the same way. And all my parents' friends were these very happy couples. It was a kind of, you know, real bubble. Um, a lot of those marriages are no longer intact, actually. So <laughs> but at the time, it seemed like that's just what happens to everyone. Yeah. So... I think that that relationship I had at university, one of the reasons I found it so hard to let go was that I had this expectation that this is this would be the one. That's what happens. I didn't realise how complicated these things can be. Um, so I definitely think it gave me a very high bar, an almost un unattainable bar. Um, on the other hand, it is, as I've gone to appreciate, you know, going through life, such a privilege to have this really stable relationship at the heart of your life and these two people who you know, can kind of constantly renew your faith in the, you know, I've never doubted that it's possible to be with someone for life, as I think some of my friends have, because mm. I, I see it every day. And yeah, and it's, it's an incredibly supportive and loving relationship that, you know, that kind of spilled over and created a loving home for my sister and I, which is, I think, the most important thing. Yeah. And I think as you, as you get older, I think you realise what a context of privilege that is. It's the most extraordinary privilege 
It really is. To go into the world from that. It really is. And it's, I had also not realised how unusual it is. It is, yeah. It's unusual. And, you know, it was when I was at university and friends coming home to meet my parents and just being like, I've never seen that before. I've never seen anything like this before. Your yeah. dad's face lights up when your mom's, when yeah, your mom's in the room. Yeah, that's what my parents like. And also, it's funny that because as you get older, more and more, you hear people talking about love and they say, well, you know, what love is, is just like being nice to each other. And actually, you can't have a spark forever and whatever. And I'm like, well, no, I call bullshit on that. Exactly. because. I've seen it and yeah it's not fireworks for them every day exactly but they adore each other's company exactly and um they've got a real connection there exactly so you can find it I think exactly and I think like I am a bit of a hopeless romantic and I blame them partly for that I do think like I do still believe in having this the kind of relationship that you know I don't expect the spark to die out I fully expect it to remain and to grow and change and you know and I think part of that must come from them I know you're a person of great passion. Mm-hmm. The back of your book, something that I loved is there's a playlist. Oh, yeah. That's like the songs that have kind of formed yeah. your identity. So obviously passionate about music. Yeah. You talk about food quite passionately. There's a very amusing bit where you talk about being an extremely earnest vegan for a while. <laughs> so you're obviously a woman of great passion, but I'm going to ask you to choose one passionate love story to tell me. Uh, well, I have to tell you about my relationship then, <laughs> like obviously. Um, Yay, I was hoping you would say that. Yeah, so my partner um, and I met 13, nearly 14 years ago. And it wasn't love at first sight because when I met him, I was so, okay, we met at, randomly in Parliament at this like work-related event and everyone there was middle-aged except us. Like he must have been 25, I was 24. And there was this drinks reception afterwards and he was with a friend, which is inconvenient because now there are two people who witnessed this. Oh, yeah, and I basically, this. like I allegedly just marched across the room up to him. I was like, who are you? <laughs> he actually claims, I was like, hi, I'm Efwa. I went to Oxford. Who are you? That is not true. I'm putting it on the record. That is not true. I would never have said that. I think he's like lumping a bunch of things that said over a period of time into my introduction because <laughs> that's just ridiculous but anyway but I do remember him looking at his friend like oh yeah like who's this one now let's see what she's gonna say because they were just quite bemused that I just marched up there and also like not that there's anything wrong with women marching up to men and introducing themselves but I'm just I'm I'm quite a like high functioning shy person I think I don't like being in a room where I don't know anyone and I tend not to just go and introduce myself to people I'll try and find ways of making them come to me yeah so that's just like uncharacteristic and I don't know why I did it it was like I was possessed by some kind of like higher force I just was, had this magnetic pull and I don't remember thinking that I was like romantically interested in this person I just was like very intrigued for some reason and so anyway we swapped emails and we had like a long talk about all kinds of stuff and then we swapped emails and we met up for a coffee a few weeks later and I was completely like blasé. I had I, I had a dinner party I was meant to be going to at seven. I met him at five for a coffee and I was like, yeah, I'll chat to him for now and go to my dinner party and it's fine, whatever. Like honestly, didn't think about it. Sat down with him at five. Next time I look at my watch, it's nine mm-hmm. and I have not moved. I was like fixated on the spot and it was I remember getting being like I need to go to the loo getting up and going to the loo and nearly collapsing in the loo because I was just like what's happened to me it was just so wow. overwhelming yeah. like there are some rational reasons for it like the, the kind of conversation we were having is not a conversation I've ever had with anyone before 
I actually, I have to admit something that when I was reading about this man called Sam in mm-hmm. your life, I was so invested in him and your relationship mm-hmm. because he was just seemed like this extraordinary young man mm-hmm. who kind of had achieved a huge amount. And as you say in the book, he was very disciplined. You said he abstained like a monk. Mm. He was like an Olympic athlete mm. in his training. So, And you wrote about him with such amazing romance and mm. reverence about how he kind of formed who you were. Mm. I assumed that it was a relationship of the past. Oh, really? Yeah, because it was told with such so passion. And you kept referring to, even 13 years on, when we talk about that moment, I'm like, oh, how nice they're still in touch. That is so interesting. Do you know what? So many people have said to me, so um, are you still with Sam? <laughs> and I'm like, first of all, like, who? Because Sam is not his name. Oh, okay. I should say that. But yeah. if I said his name here, it would kind of defeat the point of having yeah, changed of course. Yeah. So it's taken me a while to get used to that. And two, I was like, why wouldn't I be? And I just couldn't understand why people kept asking well, me Well, I realised very quickly that this was the man who was your mm. partner. But I think it's because it felt like in the story that you were telling of your search for identity, mm. this was a pivotal moment. Yeah. This man that awakened something yeah. in you. Yeah, And it, it was, was just that it felt like almost cinematic in that That's way. so interesting. That explains a lot about other people's reaction. Yeah, I think um, it's had a very profound effect on me. And that's why I write about it, really, because I hadn't really intended to write about my love life when I wrote this book. But I just, there were there were some things I wanted to communicate that I couldn't, the only way I could really think to communicate it was by referencing our exchanges and our experiences of each other, because it's been like a lens through which I've understood so much more I think about our society and our identities and my own identity because his background's very different to yours his background like couldn't be more different to mine you know he's from Tottenham he grew up in a single parent family in real poverty I mean he would describe it as real poverty like he went without food and the right clothing sometimes and um like even other people growing up in, in Tottenham, which is generally a poor community, talk about him as having experienced like an extreme level yeah. of suffering. So, um, and, you know, through no fault of his mother's, who was kind of working like long hours in a minimum wage job and wasn't really equipped to kind of navigate the society because she came from Ghana and she was like the youngest wife of a man with a number of wives. So, you know, the whole thing was not like the plan. It wasn't the plan for her. She never planned to leave Ghana. She never planned to be on her own with like four children in a council house in London. So he 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 lived that and he I think experienced a lot of violence in the community he grew up in he had to become very kind of like he hardened him he had to become like very savvy very wise very street smart um very strong physically and mentally and then he also i think is just a very unique person he's just a very disciplined visionary person he has the ability to kind of like fixate on something and just do whatever it takes to get to that point and um, and he did, you know, he kind of, he's self, self-made completely. Yeah. He found a personal development book when he was 15, like taught himself how to life coach and plan. And he like planned, he's planned his way through his GCSEs and his A-levels, got himself to university, paid for it, became a lawyer. And in the meantime, became like a professional athlete as well. Yeah. And so, yeah, he's a very disciplined person. And I think he he's also very clever and analytical. And so I think... The combination of these things is that he was able to really understand society from his position at the bottom of it, which gave him a completely different perspective to mine. And he's never forgotten that. 
And so now, even though he's essentially middle class, you know, he's a professional and we live in Wimbledon, he's never forgotten how things look when you are like the lowest of the low in the eyes of other people. And he finds it very difficult to accept the access he's granted now because he feels like the younger him would not have been offered that access Mm. or those opportunities. Mm. And he spends basically most of his spare energy helping other people in the position he was when he was that young man. So um, he spends a lot of his time mentoring younger people and working with them. So it, it, we're like from very different places. And the thing that was so weird about our relationship was that I just, it was like we just understood each other straight away on a level. And so the reason that conversation detained me for four hours when I should have stayed for an hour and a half was that it was like, I felt he saw me completely. And like, I think I'm quite a, I'm quite a talker. Um, I'm, I'm a storyteller. I think I've kind of got a way of telling stories about myself where I kind of convince myself of a version of things and then communicate it really effectively. And I was quite used to doing that in my twenties, I think. And he saw it And he was like, he just saw right through it. Well, you said he said he thought you were lost, didn't he? He did. And he saw it straight away. And I've since learned he's like an uncanny judge of character, like Mm. terrifyingly good judge of character. But it was just like he had this laser, laser vision that saw straight through me to my core. And that really, I felt really exposed for the first time, I think. And also I felt understood at the same time. So it was a very intense experience. And at the same time, I had this reaction to him where I just kind of felt similarly that I got him and it was it was one of those things and you know it's the weirdest thing that seven years later when our daughter was born so when I was pregnant because we weren't married we had to do this Ghanaian ceremony it's Ghana being Ghana there is a specific ceremony for people who are pregnant and are not yet married (laughs) (laughs) so we had to do it it's called a knocking so his family had to come to my family's house and the tradition thing is they have to like knock on the door and my family have to be like, who is there? And they have to say, you have a beautiful flower in your garden that we wish to pluck. And then they come in with all this cloth and schnapps and money. And it's like a very traditional thing that in the village people would have done. And um, like through that meeting of the families, it emerged that our families are like very deeply connected. Really? From the same part of the same village in Ghana. And I found that quite like profound because Mm. I think there was this sense for me of some kind of like mystical connection that I never could fully understand where it came from. And given that I've spent my whole life trying to like unravel my identity and kind of trace my emotional roots, I just found it really powerful that he's literally from the same place that my family's from. And his it's like we were neighbours but we went totally different paths Mm. and so ended up having these totally different lives and then in a way it's like by coming together we kind of completed the circle but totally unwittingly I couldn't have even named that village when I first met him I had no idea so um yeah, I mean, since I'm interested in kind of identity and, and piecing together these puzzles, that's something that really resonated with me and it gave it like an extra layer of like profundity to me yeah. that I was like, this is destiny, you know. I couldn't have done my book. I couldn't have written it if it weren't for his support and the fact that he's like relentlessly supportive of me being me. And he's always, he always, his motto is, do you, do you, you know, don't let anyone distract you, do you, like be who you know you are, be truthful to yourself. And, and that's been a huge source of support and strength for me. For your final love story, I would like you to tell me a story of everlasting love. So that would have to be my love for my daughter, who is six. 
Um, her name is Naya and she has just, it probably sounds like such a cliche, but she's totally changed my life. I think that, and maybe it's the case for a lot of women of our generation, I was raised to be quite selfish, not like necessarily in a bad way, but just quite focused on my goals and my dreams. And, you know, and maybe it's a product of kind of our mother's generation where they fought for us to have these opportunities and then wanted us to make the most of them and told us you can be anything and do anything and live your best life and um which I took quite seriously and yeah. like really did <laughs> work on a lot and I didn't grow up with any particular responsibility like caring responsibilities you know my sister's 5 years younger who I also have ever deep and everlasting love for my sister but I didn't really have to raise her in any way and I didn't have anyone dependent on me and so it was when I had my daughter in 2011 that it was the f- it was the first time there was somebody depending on me, and like my life wasn't about myself anymore. Mm-hmm. There was something and someone more important than me and my well being, and it was just a very profound mental shift. And I guess I'm really fortunate because I think it came quite naturally to me. And I know not everyone has this experience, but I did just feel this overwhelming love and devotion for her, which I still feel. And on her side, I think she feels very comfortable in the idea that I exist to serve her (laughs) and her needs. That is the point of me. She's 100% secure in that sense of identity. Yeah, she's just such a joy. And it's such a special thing to see a person that is the kind of like combination of you and the the person that you love. And she's, I would like to say that because Sam is quite, not quite, he's a very serious person. And I'm quite a smiley, kind of like happy living person. And so I always say that, my, and this is true, my daughter looks like me when she smiles and like him when she frowns. And that kind of <laughs> summarizes her personality, really. She's, she's got his seriousness and intensity, but she's got my kind of like lightness of spirit, I think. But also from what you touched on earlier with, if you have more of a kind of people pleaser mentality, which I certainly do. And he's someone who just takes no bullshit. Yeah. Somewhere halfway between that yeah. is like the sweet spot. Isn't yeah, it? it is. And she she knows who she is. And actually, she's not got any need for approval. She withholds quite a lot. So, you know, whenever I take her to meet friends or whatever, and I'm like, give your auntie Jessica a kiss. She's like, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> not having it. She won't be like, hi, it's so nice to meet you. No. That's she's like, you're going to have to work for my love. That's my daughter. And I quite admire that because I was that person that wanted affection and wanted approval. And she's got so much security in who she is. She doesn't need that. And she gets that from him. 100%. And how has your relationship changed? Because that's quite quite a huge, you know, gear shift, isn't it? Huge, huge. It was really difficult at first, if I'm honest, because our relationship was able to kind of like accommodate ours and especially his lifestyle which is very solitary and very focused and you know you become the way he is by spending a lot of time on your own planning reading kind of living this solitary and disciplined life and that's not compatible with meeting the needs of like a partner and a baby so he had to change and I needed him to change probably more than he was able to change and so it was a huge adjustment and I think as well, you you expect to recreate the kind of parenting experience you had with your child, you know, without even thinking about it. And our relationship's pretty different to my parents' relationship. He's pretty different to my dad and um, our whole kind of, our whole home life and the way we live is quite different to the way I was brought up. And 
in a positive sense. Like I think we've created our own thing, mm. which is what you're meant to do. I think, you know, take the best of what you've been given and then create something for yourself mm. that works for you, that's true to who you are. But it's taken time to work it out and to work out our respective roles and responsibilities. And I've had to learn to be equally kind of accepting of who he needs to be. And that's mm. not always compatible with the kind of social conventions I was raised with. So yeah. like on the weekends, you won't find us necessarily like holding hands, walking in the park together. He's off doing his planning or his reading. And we don't kind of spend family time in the same ways I did growing up, but we spend family time in different ways. Yeah. So it's just kind of, for me, being getting my head around the fact that this is different. And for him as well, getting the head around the fact that he's not a solitary creature anymore but it's helped by the fact that he also has has this everlasting love for our daughter and mm. you know we both just so enjoy being with her and she's a, a source of like so much joy and love and that does smooth the transition a lot mm. F.Y. Hirsch thank you so much for thank joining you, me Dolly. and telling me your love stories thank you for having me thank you for listening to Love Stories you can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes to give the series a boost and help others find it. And you can buy my book, Everything I Know About Love, published by Fig Tree, in Waterstones, on Amazon or in all good bookshops. Or buy the audiobook on Audible. Love Stories is recorded in the Penguin Studio in London. The music was composed and recorded by Lauren Benstead. Tune in next week when another guest will be telling me their love stories.